Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. So glad that you're here this morning. My name is Phil Ortigo. I'm the senior pastor here. Those of you who are watching us online right now, live streaming, we're glad that you're able to join us and hope that this is a great time of blessing and encouragement to you. Well, a couple of weeks ago, God's favor was heavily upon us as we were protected from Hurricane Dorian as we watched patiently it go um, off the coast and make its way all the way toward the Outer Banks. But the folks in the Outer Banks were not as fortunate as we were. Many of them were hit hard, particularly those on Ocracoke Island. And uh, I talked with a friend of mine who lives out in that area this past week and asked, is there anything that we can do as a church to help? He said, right now it's really difficult because they're without electricity, they have no power, and actually if you go on the island, there's no place to stay, there's no place where you can eat, everything is destroyed there, so there's no way to get on immediately right now. But we are partnering with Baptist on Mission, and there are going to be some opportunities for us to send some small teams there in the days ahead. But what we can do right now is that there is a great need that I'm aware of, of some totes. They need totes on, on, on that work there because they're, they're gathering their stuff. They have to collect their stuff. There's really no place to put it. So we can collect some totes. Now, if you have some totes at home, those big plastic totes, um, and if you'd like to donate those, we're going to have one of our pods open up right over here on the left side, my left, your right, of the field. You'll see some containers out there. We'll make one of those open, and you can bring some totes. Now, if you got some from home and you want to bring some totes, make sure you bring them with the appropriate lids, you know, the ones that work, uh, because we want to make sure that we get some good totes. Or if you'd like to go buy some totes, we can collect those, and we'll have someone come and pick all those totes up and be able to deliver them. So that's an opportunity that we have immediately that we can get involved with those folks who are hurting on Ocracoke. Also, last week, I, I made an announcement about it was Grandparents' Day, and so many of you, like me, were able to celebrate, and I, I made the announcement of my, my grandson, Hudson, had a picture of him. Then I made the announcement of my daughter, Leslie, and her husband, Joe, are expecting a, a, a little girl now, and, I, and, and she was watching online. And, and she, was, she was kind of concerned with one of the words I used. And I didn't realize I used this, but I used the phrase, they were distraught. And, um, and I didn't mean to use that. They were not distraught. They were not destroyed because they were having a child. They're very filled with joy. They were quite surprised. That should have been the word that I used. And then after using the word distraught, suddenly I was distraught because of that. And so I just want to clarify that. They are with great joy anticipating this little girl that's going to be coming. And we are still overjoyed with the fact of that. So I wanted to clear that up. She might be watching right now. So Leslie, I've cleared your name. God bless you. And we're still happy about it. Last week we began a new series called Everything. And what we begin looking at is that we have everything we need for life and godliness in a relationship with God. And we're, we're looking at the letter of Peter, and we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, open to 2 Peter chapter 1. And what I want us to do is I want us to very quickly have a review because some folks were not here last week, and we want to make sure we're on the same page. So quickly, I'm going to give a, a, a review of what we discussed last week. We began by saying that there's a, there's a common phrase, there's really a sentence that describes humanity. And here's what we put up. We're all 
we all are in search of the one thing that will bring us everything that we need. We all tend to look for the one thing. It's been true ever since humanity. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, even then they were tempted to go after the one thing they couldn't have, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so even them began to search for that. They did that, and we have done that ever since. We're always looking for the next one thing that will bring us everything. But the problem with the next one thing is that there's always another one thing to come. And those one things never make us happy. We talked about some of those one things, that one relationship, that one job, that one possession, that one break, that one accomplishment. But the problem is all of the one things lead us to the next one thing that never satisfies us. As we began to look at the everything that we have in God, we looked in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And in those first four verses, Peter instructs us on the essentials for the everything that we need. Now, Peter is writing to a group of believers who are going through some difficult times. And Peter himself is awaiting his execution. He knows that he will not live much longer. So what does he do? He reminds them of this truth that no matter what we face, we have everything we need. In verses 1 through 4, he points it out. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In these four verses, there were three essentials that we discovered that will give us everything we need for life and for godliness. And those three things, just quick review, is everything we need is found in one person. Everything we need is found in that one person, and that one person is Jesus Christ. He is humanity's greatest need, as we discovered last week. He is our greatest need, and he's the only one who can satisfy the longings of our heart. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, everything we need is fashioned by God's power. It is his power that has given us everything from life to godliness. He gives us life, physical life. He gives us spiritual life. He's the one that gives us um, knowledge of him. He gives us faith of him. He gives us the ability to trust him and the godliness that we need. For He gives us all the power we need for life and godliness. And everything we need is secured in God's promises. We looked last week of all the promises of God's word. They are meant for the purpose of glorifying him. They're meant to benefit our lives. But our lives are most benefited when we glorify him. Him. This past week, I had a, uh, my wife told me that one of her friends from this church had um, texted her and, and that she had brought a granddaughter with her to church and, and she was writing down the entire service and she wondered what she was writing. And when she got home, she discovered that what she wrote the entire time was this. She took every time the name Jesus 
or the Father or the Holy Spirit was mentioned either in a prayer or a song or in a sermon. And you know how many times that came up? 423 times. That's the centrality of what we need to be satisfied. What else do we need? We've got the Son. We've got the Father. We've got the Holy Spirit. The Father who has provided everything for us through His Son and the Holy Spirit who lives within us, we should be satisfied. Amen? There should be nothing else we need. And why is satisfaction in Him so important? John Piper said it so well so many years ago. This has become his motto. Some of you have heard this statement. Some of you have never heard it, but you need to write it down because it is so true. And here's what John Piper says. He says, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. The greatest way that you and I can bring glory to the Father is to be completely satisfied in him. When I am satisfied in Jesus, he receives the greatest glory of my life. When I'm satisfied in the Father, he receives the greatest glory in my life. When I'm satisfied by the power of the Holy Spirit within me, he receives the greatest glory in our lives. And when you and I are completely satisfied by everything that he has done for us, then he is most glorified in your satisfaction. This is what Peter is saying. And that because of all of this, we can participate with him in his godly nature. We can partner with him and he is honored. Now, Peter lays that out in the first four verses. And then in verses five and following, he shifts gears he gives us what seems to be something that's paradoxical in nature. Something that seems to contradict everything he has just said. He said, in these essentials, in the person of Jesus, in the power of God, in the promises of his word, we have everything we need. But then in verse 5, he tells us to do something. Here's what he says. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, he seems to shift gears. He just says, we have everything we need. But now, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Now, wait a minute. If I have everything I need, how do you add to everything? Here's what Peter is saying. He says, for this very reason. What very reason? Because you and I have everything we need to partner with God in this life. Because we have everything we need to walk with him Make every effort to supplement your faith. The word supplement simply means to add generously to what God has already done. He's the one that's given us the faith to believe. He's given us everything we need. So I must make every effort to partner with God in this life. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, God is the one who does certain things 
and he can own and he does only those certain things, but there are things in our life that we must do. Only God can save us. Only God can forgive us. Only God can fill us with the Holy Spirit. Only God can give us eternal security. Those are the things that God does. God gives us new birth, but you and I have the responsibility for spiritual growth. That's our responsibility. There's certain things God will do for us, and only God can do for us. But there's certain things we must do for ourselves. And that means we must partner with God. We like to say that it's God's hill. We must join God in his work of what? We join God in his work of transforming lives. Salvation is not just about what God does. It's also what we are called to do. Many years ago, there was a little slogan that was going around in the churches. People were getting shirts, bumper stickers of this. You may have had it. You may have used it. I've used it, but it's really wrong. It's contrary to what the scriptures teach us. And the little phrase kind of got out of hand. Here was the phrase. You remember it. Let go and let God. Sounds good, doesn't it? Let go, let God. But what happened was the mentality became to be God does everything. I can cruise to this life. You know what? I got my fire insurance. Jesus paid the premium on the cross. I can just cruise into eternity. I got my life insurance. Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. I can cruise into eternity. But that is contrary to what the scripture teaches us. Many believers are coasting in this life and they're saying, listen, I've been saved. I'm born again. Got the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to enjoy life until heaven. And I don't have to do anything in this Christian life. Many people are treating the Christian life like it's an all-inclusive spa where God waits on you hand and foot. And we've created a God and a, gen a genie in a bottle where he is there to serve me. But I want you to know something. The Christian life is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. It's not a cruise ship where you get to sit around a pool and everybody waits on you. It's a battleship where you have a station because this is spiritual warfare. The Christian life is not lived on a playground. It's lived on a battleground. And you and I are to join God in his work of transforming our lives. The apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying earn your salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. Here's what he's saying. You work out what God has worked in. You are to work out of you what God has worked in you. And as God is doing his work in you, you are to allow what he has done in you to work out of you to give a testimony of his gospel and to give a testimony of your faithfulness to him. It is a partnership where we join God in his work of transforming lives. Why do we need to do this? Here's what Peter says in verses 8 through 10. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What is he talking about here? He's talking about these seven qualities that he mentions should be growing in us. And these things make us productive in the Christian life. They make us fruitful in the Christian life. They keep us from being nearsighted, blind. They keep us from amnesia, amnesia, forgetting what he has done. So here are the seven things that you and I are to supplement our faith with. Virtue, knowledge, self-control steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. For the next several weeks, we're unpacking these. We're looking at these qualities that we need to pursue and to supplement, to add generously to the faith that God has given to us as we work out our salvation. So today, we're looking at just one. We're going to look at the very first quality and in your notes, we're going to just look at a couple of things about this first quality. So what is this first quality? Quality number one, we have everything we need to pursue moral excellence. Moral excellence. Now, I want you to know, as I began to study for this, I, I had a difficult time this week in preparing. And here's why. I took all of my commentaries. I took all of my books, my resources. I, I put them all over my desk. And I have a huge desk. And they're all over the place. And I began to read everything I could about what moral excellence is. And in all of the commentaries that I have read, all of my commentaries in life have about that much on it. There's just very little. So you're thinking, good, we're about to be done. No, we're not. Because I had to search and had to study and had to understand the meaning of the word. And when I came to understand the meaning of the word, I discovered a vast treasure of what moral excellence means. The word in the Greek is arte, A-R-E-T-E. And that word can mean virtue, goodness, or moral excellence. The word means outstanding. It means superb. It means excellent. It means that it is something that fulfills its intended design with excellence. A knife that cuts with precision is said to be arte, excellent. A horse that runs with incredible speed and power is said to be arte, excellent. A singer that performs and, and can hit every single note perfectly is said to be arte. A professional football team that can beat the Houston Texans in 37 seconds left in the game is said to be arte or the Saints. You get the point. The point is this. He's saying that we are to pursue excellence in the Christian life. And that we have everything we need to pursue excellence. Now let me tell you. There's a difference between perfection and excellence. Perfection is the evil twin of excellence. Perfection can never be achieved in this world. But excellence can. And in the Christian life, we're called to live this life with this incredible excellence. We're not to live a life that is just good enough. Just good enough. You know, there's nothing more frustrating than when you have a, a teenager 
or, or say you have a child that is very smart, very bright, and can blow the top off every test, but they only study just enough to get by. It's frustrating, isn't it? It's frustrating when you watch an athlete who has the skills to be able to blow the top off of any event, but they only train just enough to get by. And there's nothing more grieving to the Heavenly Father when He has given His children everything they need for excellence. And they only do enough to get by. God has called us to be people of moral excellence. We are to be excellent in all that we do. We should never be satisfied with just enough. Have you ever heard the phrase, you know, it's good enough for government work? Have you ever heard that? Raise your hand. Have you heard that? It's good enough for government work? Yeah, how many of you work for the government and know that's true? No, just kidding. Okay. (laughs) Some of you raise your hands and you know. That's not what we're talking about here. He's saying make every effort to supplement the faith that God has given you with excellence. You know what Jeremiah writes? He says this, Cursed is the man who does the Lord's work negligently. We are to pursue excellence in our life. And as we talk about excellence, what does that mean? When we talk about moral excellence, par excellence is the phrase. What does it mean? Let me give you three things that you and I are to pursue with excellence. And they all come from the word arte. Here's the first thing. We are to pursue courage with excellence. Courage with excellence. The word virtue literally means heroic deeds of courage. The man in battle was considered to be virtuous. If he was a courageous man. The woman in her efforts is considered to be virtuous in her courageous attempts in life. That word means courage. It means an excellent kind of courage. A heroic kind of courage. It's the kind of courage that Jesus had. Think about what he did. He faced the Pharisees with courage. He was not afraid of any of them. He called them hypocrites to their face. He stood before Pilate, the man who had the authority to sentence him or set him free with absolute courage. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane with absolute courage in fulfilling the Father's plan of going to the cross. And there was never a time in Jesus' life where he was not courageous. Think of the disciples. All of the disciples lost their lives because of their courage. They were all martyred and put to death because of their courage. Look at the early church. If you've studied church history or read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you will find story after story after story of believers who were put to death for their faith. They were put into arenas and wild, hungry lions were turned loose and and, and, and killed every single Christian in that arena while crowds cheered. They were put as human torches in Nero's garden parties and set on fire. They were wrapped in animal skins and turned loose in the wilderness while wild dogs attacked them. They were thrown in prison. They were beheaded. They were crucified. And every one of them went to that place with courage, refusing to recant their faith in Christ. And if you look even today around persecuted Christians around the world, 
you will hear of the stories of courage over and over and over. I'm afraid this excellence of courage among believers is something that has waned in our country. You see, you and I don't have to worry about giving our life because of our faith in Christ. But you know what? We're not even courageous because we might have to give up our position. Or we might have to give up our popularity. Or we might have to give up our preeminence. Or we might have to give up our comfort. And I want to tell you what is needed in the church today are courageous believers. Courageous men and women of God who are not afraid of their relationship with Christ. We're living in a culture today where the PC policemen are telling us what we can say and what we can't say, what we can do and what we can't do. Oh, you can't talk about that. Oh, you can't preach that. That's, that's hate language. And what do we do? We cower to the cries of our culture. And we have become an uncourageous people where we no longer stand boldly in excellence. God desires his church to be courageous, not just when our life is on the line, but courageous on the job, courageous in our families to lead them, courageous in our schools, courageous on our sports teams, courageous for Jesus with excellence where we are not ashamed to be his children. And if there's ever a time in our country where we need to be courageous, it is now because things, folks, are getting darker and darker and darker. And the only thing that runs out darkness is light. And you are the light of the world. Do you know what October 3rd is? This is wonderful. This is an opportunity for our kids to model Courage. October the 3rd is Bring Your Bible to School Day. It's a wonderful opportunity for our kids to say, you know what, we're going to bring our Bibles to school. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to share with my friends. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. But you know, another thing is every day is an opportunity for us to be courageous for Jesus. Amen? October the 5th, you know what that is? That is Decision America. Franklin Graham is going to be in town at Legion Stadium. And what an opportunity for the believers to gather together and to pray and ask God to bring a revival to our own city. It's time for us to stand and be courageous with the gospel. And God wants excellence in our courage. But here's the second thing we're to pursue. Not only am I pursue courage, but I'm to pursue character. I'm to pursue character with excellence. Now, if there's anything lacking in our country today, it is character, isn't it? We see that in our political world. We see that all around us, that there seems to be a void of moral character among us. Rather than developing character in people, we seem to become a nation that's just developing a bunch of characters. And we see it all around us. But I want to tell you, the same is true in the church. One of the most appalling things to me is the number of preachers and church leaders who are falling out of ministry either because of unbelief or immorality. 
I just read a few weeks ago one young man who has written a couple of books that was very, very popular in our culture now has left his wife, left his kids, has renounced Christianity and said he finally is able to live a life free of the restraints of Christianity. And he's doing that. And many Christians applauded him for living his convictions. I'm thinking of another man who's very popular, who, who, who preached at a very large church. He's related to Billy Graham, has multiple affairs, removed from that congregation, removed his credentials, went to another church, had another affair. They fired him, and now he is starting his own church. In the midst of all of these failures, and the people who are going to his church are saying this, oh, we like him because he has fallen just like we are. Now, we have shifted from moral excellence to moral equivalency. And there's a big difference between the two. And there seems to be a void of character. I want to say something very clearly. Ministry is a character vocation. Ministry is a character vocation. You can be, a man can be a liar and be an excellent mechanic. A woman can be an adulteress and be an outstanding surgeon. A man can be an alcoholic and be a brilliant CEO of a company. But a man cannot be a pastor and be any of those things because it is a character vocation. I want to tell you, your pastors on staff here, our greatest asset for this body is our personal holiness. It always is. Our greatest asset is going to be our personal holiness that we walk in a godly character. And I want to tell you that not only is the pastorate a character vocation, but Christianity is a character vocation. As a Christian, character is, is the central part of who you are. Men, listen. Your greatest asset for your wife is not your job, but it's your personal holiness. Ladies, your greatest asset for your family is not your skills, it's your personal holiness. And Christians, our greatest influence in this world is our personal holiness. Because as we live holy lives that are separate and distinct from the culture, then you and I have a right to speak of holiness and righteousness. That's what we're called to do. And so when we talk about character, what are some of the areas we need to talk about? Let me give you three things real quickly. Integrity. When we talk about character, we need to be men and women of integrity. The word integrity in the Greek, you know what it means? It means without cracks. Without cracks, let me give you an explanation for that. People who sold pottery in a marketplace back in those days would often put their wares out. Now, if they had a piece of pottery that had a crack in it, they would put wax over it, they'd paint it, and the unsuspecting eye would buy it and think that there were no cracks. But the person who understood better would take that vase or that pottery, hold it up to the light of the sun, and if there was wax in it, it would be exposed, and it would be with cracks. And they would know not to buy it because it's not a piece of integrity. I want to tell you, there are too many cracked pots in the church today. <laughs> We're called to be without cracks. 
Now we all stumble, we all fall, we all sin, but we are to live lives of integrity without cracks as we live with people. That's a part of what our character should be. But not only walking in integrity, but we're to walk in purity. What does purity look like? Holiness. It is to be pure in my speech. It is to be pure in my actions. It is to be pure in my life. It is to be pure in my thinking. I am to walk with purity. You know what John says in 1 John? He says, we should make it our aim not to sin. When I read that, I get convicted because many times I make it my aim not to sin too much. And we're called to make it our aim not to sin. We are to walk in purity. Thirdly, we're to walk in humility. We're to walk in humility. There's something about a person of humility that is attractive to other people. When you see somebody who's boastful and arrogant and prideful, it turns you off. They may be all those things, but they don't have to speak of themselves in that way. One of the greatest things of people of humility, and the Lord Jesus walked in all of these, didn't he? In every bit of it. He had the courage. He had the character of holiness and purity, and we are to pursue that with excellence. But here's the third. Well, let, let's do this. Paul writes this in Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. We're to walk with courage. We're to pursue godly character. But here's the third thing. We are to pursue conviction with excellence. Conviction with excellence. The word virtue not only means high standing, but it means a high standing of knowing what's right and wrong. It's goodness. And so a person who is walking with moral excellence is a person who's walking with deep convictions. Now, when it comes to convictions of the Bible, there are two kinds. There's some who are driven by a biblical convenience. They attack the word of God in a convenient way. In other words, they will use what is expedient for them. But if it doesn't fit their experience or where they presently find themselves, they will jettison that. Let me give you an illustration. I've been pastoring for almost 30 years now. And in all my years of pastoring, I've followed people's lives and I've watched it. I've watched people who begin with this real strong conviction in God's word, but then some experience comes in their life or their family experiences something. And you know what? They no longer walk in that, con that conviction because it's not convenient to that lifestyle or that relationship. So they jettison it. And those things that once were the convictions of their hearts no longer are there. Their lives do not match that. Let me give you an illustration. A couple teaches their kids over and over and over that living together before marriage is not pleasing to God. Then their kids end up living with someone before marriage. And that which once was a conviction no longer is, and now it's okay with them. And we can take those convictions and move them all the way to expediency for the convenience of my needs. Those are not convictions. But here's the other way. Some are driven by biblical conviction. 
That means it never changes. They stand on the truth of God's word. And even though culture shifts, even though culture redefines, even the mores of culture may change, they never change. Even if they're accused of using hate language, even if they're accused of being bigoted and closed-minded and backwooded, they do not change the convictions. Now, they might change the way they share those convictions, but they never change their convictions. I have two sisters. One of my sisters called me about a year ago and said, Phil, our son has come to us and has renounced Christianity and has embraced a homosexual lifestyle. And I said, well, what are you doing about it? She said, here's what we're doing. We told him that we love him unconditionally, and we will always love him. He's our son. We will always be there for him to encourage him. But just as we love him, we also love Jesus and we love his word. And we will never water down the gospel for his experience. We will never change the gospel for his lifestyle. And while we love him, we will never embrace his lifestyle as being pleasing to God. While we love him, we will never bless any relationship that is same-sex relationship. While we love him, we are never going to stop telling him that his greatest need is Jesus Christ. Now, our culture would say, that is not a loving parent. But that young man needs to hear truth mixed with love that never changes. And while he's struggling and struggling, God is doing a work in his life because of the absolute committed conviction of his parents walking in truth. You see, we are to have excellence in our convictions. We're to have excellence in our conduct. We are to pursue excellence in our courage. And as we do these things, virtue, moral excellence, is something that grounds us and our families in a culture that needs to hear the truth. Now, I will be the first to tell you that these days are more difficult because here's why. It's easy to stand on convictions when everybody around you holds those convictions. It's easy for you to stand in courage when everybody around you supports your belief. It's easy to stand in character when everybody around you is modeling the same character. But where we are living are just like the people in Peter's day who were being persecuted for their faith. And he said, pursue moral excellence. The Lord Jesus did that for you and me. The Lord Jesus went to the cross in every single way with moral excellence so that you and I can have a relationship with the Father. Here's my challenge to us as a body. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Supplement it. Add generously to the faith that he has given to you moral 
excellence. Be courageous. Be men and women of character. Be the kind of person who stands on the convictions of God's word that is unchangeable. Because your children need it. Your grandchildren need it. This culture needs it. And God is calling us to be people like Polycarp, who was the disciple of the Apostle John. At 84 years old, he was arrested, and the emperor told him he must recant his faith in Christ or he will be burned at the stake. And Polycarp stood before the emperor, and what he said to him is this, you burn me at the stake, but do one favor, do not tie my hands to a pole. If I shall be burned, I shall be burned freely, unbound in the fire. And they said, so be it. And they put Polycarp in the middle of that fire. And as they lit that fire, standing by the pole, unbounded, with hands raised, and worshiping the Lord Jesus, they were shocked. He was not burning. He was not screaming in pain. Instead, he's singing hymns. And finally, a Roman soldier was instructed to go and to strike him with the sword because that was the only way that they would kill him. And he died. His last words were this. Jesus, my Lord, has never done me harm. In these 84 years, how can I deny him now? Moral excellence. That's what God is calling his children to be. Arte, excellent, par excellence. You were designed to fulfill God's intention of glorifying Him. Do it. Do it well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge of your word. Thank you, Father, for the calling that you've placed on us to pursue excellence with our lives. And Father, may we not grieve your heart by underachieving what we have the power to achieve in Christ. And Father, may we do that for your glory. And God's people said, Amen.